Book Three, Chapter Eleven of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Book Three, Chapter Eleven. No joy from favourable fortune can overweigh the anguish of this stroke. The night that followed was the darkest Malcolm Ford had ever known till now darker even than that which followed Alice Fraser's death, for are not the dead that are already dead better than the living that are yet alive? And to the believer death has no positive horror. It is only the anguish of separation, a human sorrow, a human longing, a sharp pain tempered always by that divine hope which makes this earthly life verily a pilgrimage leading to fair worlds beyond it. But this death in life called madness this living death which may endure for the length of the longest life is more bitter than the coffin and the grave to know her miserable and helpless in the hands of people she feared linked to a husband she had never even pretended to love was to know her in a state as much worse than death as waking agony is worse than dreamless sleep never until this hour when he looked round his empty room the vacant chair where she had sat the expiring fire into which those lovely eyes had gazed with their far-off dreaming look never until now had he fully realised how he loved her how little the life he had lived and the work he had done in five long years had served to divide him from her how near and dear she was to him still sleep or even the semblance of rest the miserable pretence of going to bed was impossible to him that night he walked down to Slognadiac, down to the little bay where the troubled waters broke against the shore with a dismal moaning, where the reflection of the moon was blotted out every now and then by black wind-driven clouds. It was a dreary night, bleak and wintry, not a favourable season for midnight wanderings or patient vigil beneath the window of a beloved sleeper, yet Malcolm Ford paced at the narrow strip of beach below Lord Paulyn's garden a strip that was covered at high tide until the morning grey. That patient watch might be useless, was useless no doubt, but it was all that he could do, the sole service he could render to the woman he loved. He saw the lighted windows on the chief upper floor, lights that never waned through the weary night, and he felt very sure they belonged to the rooms inhabited by Elizabeth. Had a cry of anguish broken from those dear lips, it must have pierced the stillness of the night when the wind was low and reached him on his beat. Sometimes, when the shrill blast shrieked in the mountain gorge upon the opposite shore, he almost fancied the sound of human anguish was mixed with the voice of the wind. It was a sad, unsatisfactory vigil, but it was better to be there beneath her windows than to be lying sleepless miles away, beyond reach of her loudest cry. When day came and the first grey threads of smoke crept up from the Gothic chimneys, he went round to the chief entrance, rang the bell, and inquired of the sleepy housemaid who answered it if Lady Paulyn had passed a quiet night. "'Ask the head nurse,' he said, as the girl stared at him vaguely, "'and then come back and tell me exactly what she says,' emphasising his request with a donation. The girl departed and returned quickly enough, much the same as usual sir nurse barber says and would you please leave your name give that to miss disney 
he said, handing the girl his card, on which he had written the date and 7 a.m. He wanted Hilda to know that he was vigilant, and was not to be deterred from watchfulness by any fear of slander or of Lord Paulyn's displeasure. This done, he went back to Dunallen, went back to the early service in the chapel, and to another day's work in the quiet little parish where he had made himself beloved. There was nothing more for him to do, he thought, than to wait till the arrival of the fast train from the south, which would not reach the station at Ellensbridge till half-past nine o'clock at night, even if it were punctual, an event not always to be counted as a certainty on a Scotch railway. He found two telegrams on his study table when he went back to the manse after his morning's work. The first from Gertrude. I leave Hawley at 9am today, Thursday, and shall leave London for Ellensbridge by the limited mail. The second, a vague and helpless message from Mrs. Chevenix, entreating for detailed information and pleading indifferent health as a reason for not coming to Scotland, if such a journey might possibly be avoided. Mrs. Chevenix had squandered three and sixpence worth of telegraphic communication in the endeavour to represent herself ardently desirous of flying to her beloved niece's sickbed, yet unhappily obliged to remain in Eaton Place South. Not till to-morrow, therefore, could Elizabeth's sad eyes be gladdened by the sight of a familiar face. Not till to-morrow could sisterly arms enfold that poor sufferer. For many hours to come Malcolm Ford must be content to leave her to the tender mercy of hired nurses and Hilda Disney. He could do nothing for her except pray, and all his thoughts in this bitter time were prayers for her. The railway to Ellensbridge was only a loop-line, and that stern adherence to the hours set down in timetables, which is demanded by southern passengers on main lines, was here unknown. If a train came in an hour or so after time, no one wondered. Railway officials placidly remarked that she was just a wee bitty late, the D, and that was all. Passengers herded meekly together on the narrow platform, and gazed up and down the line, and saw other trains arrive and depart, trains that seemed to have no place in the timetable, or watched the leisurely shunting of a string of coal trucks, and made no murmur. The marvel would have been if a train at Ellensbridge had ever come up to time. Mr. Ford paced the platform with infinite impatience when the hour had gone by at which the train with passengers from the south should have arrived, waiting for the signal that should announce Gertrude Luttrell's coming. There was nothing doing at the station just at this time. Even the string of empty coal trucks stood idle. An unemployed engine on a siding puffed and snorted lazily, while the stoker off duty amused himself with the gymnastics of a disreputable-looking monkey. The day was wet and depressing. That fine, straight rain, which to the impatient tourist appears sometimes to be the normal atmosphere of Scotland, filled the air. The kind of day in which cockney travellers in the Trossachs stare hopelessly at Benvenue, looming big through the grey mist, and think they might almost as well be looking at the dome of St. Paul's from Blackfriars Bridge. The train came slowly in at last, serenely unconscious of being three-quarters of an hour behind time, a diminutive train of two carriages and an engine, and out of one of the carriages Gertrude Luttrell looked with a pale, anxious face, a face which sent a thrill of pain through the heart of Malcolm Ford, for it seemed to him that in this wan and faded countenance he saw a likeness of that altered beauty he had looked upon a little while ago. 
"'What's the matter with my sister?' she asked nervously, directly she was on the platform. "'Oh, Mr. Ford, am I too late?' Uh, She stopped and burst into tears. He led her into the little waiting-room and reassured her there was no immediate danger. "'Oh, thank God!' she cried, with a strange fervour. "'Oh, Mr. Ford, it seems like a dream seeing you here in this strange place. It seems like a dream to be here myself. I came without loss of an hour. I couldn't do any more than that, could I? Elizabeth has not been a good sister to me, or indeed to any of us. Her prosperity has made very little difference to us. We went on living our old dull life, just the same after her marriage, and she did hardly anything to brighten it. Even long ago, before you came to Hawley, she was always cold and unloving towards me, sneered at my humble efforts to do right, set herself up against me in the strength of her beauty. "'It is hardly a time for complaints of this kind,' said Mr. Ford, with grave displeasure. "'Your sister is in great trouble.' "'Have I not come? Am I not here to be with her?' why are you always so hard upon me mr ford just the same after all these years i would do anything in the world for her it's not my fault if her married life is unhappy do not let us waste time in purposeless talk i have a carriage ready to take you to your sister's house i will tell you everything on the way in the carriage he told her the real nature of her sister's illness the ruin that had befallen that bright reckless mind told her his hope of speedy cure in a case where there was no hereditary taint, no shattered constitution, only the fever and confusion of a mind ill at ease, a soul seeking peace where there was no peace. He told her of his confidence in the happy influence of a familiar presence, of old associations and sisterly affection. Gertrude was inexpressibly shocked. A curious stillness crept over her, she left off making vague attempts to explain her own conduct in relation to her sister, which had never been called into question by Mr. Ford, ceased to make little sidelong attacks upon Elizabeth, but became mute, with the aspect of one upon whom a heavy blow has fallen. Only when they were near Slognadiac did she speak. "'Can you say with confidence that you believe she will recover?' she asked. "'That you do not think she will be mad?' all her life. I can say nothing of the kind, he answered sadly. I can only say that I try to put my trust in God throughout this trial, as in others that have gone before it, but this seems harder than the rest. They were at Slognadiac by this time, but here bitter disappointment, a disappointment near akin to a despair, awaited them. For upon Gertrude announcing herself as Lady Paulyn's sister, and requesting to be taken straight to the invalid's apartments, a vacant-looking flat-faced footman informed her that her ladyship had left Slognadiac for the south just four-and-twenty hours ago. "'What?' cried Mr. Ford, who was standing on the threshold of the door, while Gertrude stood a little way within, staring helplessly at the blank face of the footman. "'Do you mean to tell me that Lady Paulyn was allowed to travel in her state of health?' "'Oh, yes, sir. The London doctor and one of the nurses went with her.' "'They went with her? But where?' Oh, "'To London, I believe, sir, as far as I could make out from what was said.' "'Where is Miss Disney? Let me see Miss Disney.' "'Oh, Miss Disney has also left, sir.' 
then let me see some one who can tell me what all this means this lady is your mistress's sister who has travelled five hundred miles to see her only to be told that she is gone and no one knows where is there any one else in the house who can explain this business the footman shook his head despondingly oh, there's cold to the butler sir he said he might know something and there's my lady's own maid let me see her exclaimed mr ford whereupon the footman always with a despondent air ushered them into the library a darksome but splendid apartment which the glasgow manufacturer had furnished with antique carved shelves for books that had never been supplied a room in which literature was represented by a waste paper basket a what-not crammed with stale newspapers a rough guide post and paddock and three or four numbers of bailey's magazine here malcolm ford paced to and fro his soul shaken to its lowest deep while gertrude sat in a huge armchair and cried feebly what had they done with elizabeth what sinister motive had they in this sudden flight what had they done with the helpless creature who had come to him for refuge casting herself upon his pity entreating with heart-piercing accents for shelter and protection and he had refused to shelter her the fear of injuring her in the sight of the world or of widening the breach between her and her husband had been stronger with him than love and pity the anxious desire to do his duty had triumphed over the voice of his heart which had said claim a brother's right to protect her in affliction and defy the world he had done that which he had deemed the only thing possible for him to do he had summoned her nearest of kin the sister who had a right to be by her side at such a time even in defiance of a husband he had done this and behold it was as if he had done nothing for her where had they taken her on what dismal journey had she gone with a nurse and a doctor his heart sank as he brooded upon that question there was only one answer that presented itself an answer that was too horrible to think of the door was opened after some delay by mr coulter the butler who had been enjoying the morning in a dressing-gown and slipper condition loitering over a late breakfast and making the most of the family's absence and had just made a hasty toilet in order to come to the front and see what was meant by miss luttrell's unlooked-for appearance on the scene behind him came a young woman with a nervous air and eyelids that were reddened with weeping uh, this young person is lady paulyn's maid sarah todd said the butler blandly i have sent for her to see you sir as i was informed you had expressed a wish to that effect but there is no information she can give you about my lady as i don't know as well as her i'm sorry you should have made such a long journey for nothing ma'am he added turning to miss luttrell but if you'd wrote or telegraphed the trouble might have been avoided i want to know all about this business sir said malcolm ford with his sternest air at whose bidding and in whose custody was lady paulyn removed from this house by the order of her medical adviser sir and under his protection with a nurse also in attendance upon her indeed then lord paulyn was not with his wife oh no sir my lord is in himvenetia what then it was in his absence lady paulyn was removed 
oh certainly sir oh which the removal of her ladyship had been arranged before his lordship left this house it was his lordship's wish to be away at this time with a natural delicacy of feeling where has lady paulyn been taken to her house in park lane uh, no sir here sarah todd the maid dissolved into tears at which the butler stared sternly at her informing her that the lady and gentleman wanted none of her snivelling oh, pray do not scold her said mr ford i am glad to see that she can feel for her mistress and now perhaps you will be good enough to tell me where lady paulyn has been taken if not to her town-house uh, that sir is a question i do not feel myself at liberty to answer you need not stand upon punctilio you can waive the natural delicacy of mind which you no doubt share with your master i can guess the worst you can tell me lady paulyn has been taken to a private madhouse i believe sir it is something in the way of an asylum strictly private of course and everything upon the footing of a gentleman's house replied the butler softening with a view to a possible donation slipped unobtrusively into his palm presently when he was escorting these visitors back to their carriage can you give me the exact address of the house no sir everything was kept extraordinarily close i heard it was somewhere near london even a nurse didn't know where she was going one of the nurses went with lady paulyn you say which was she the tall woman uh, yes sir and what became of the other uh, she left by the same train sir to go back to her uh, own home and do you know her address uh, no sir nor you turning to the maid no sir but she'd come from an institution somewhere near the strand you might hear of her there perhaps will you oblige me by writing down the names of both nurses on a slip of paper said mr ford there was an inkstand and portfolio on the table and the girl sat down immediately and wrote two names in a neat schoolgirl hand um, mrs barber that's the tall nurse who went with lady paulyn sir uh, and mrs gurbage uh, that's the one who went home thank you i must try to find mrs gurbage and now tell this lady all you can i'll leave you with her for a few minutes while i talk to mr coulter in the hall tell her how lady paulyn was when she left this place the girl shook her head sorrowfully there's very little i can tell sir though i love my lady dearly for she was always a dear good mistress to me a little hasty sometimes but oh, so generous and kind but from the time she began to be so ill they wouldn't let me go near her though i know she used to ask for me for i've stood outside her door sometimes for half an hour at a time and listened and heard her call me and then cry ever so pitifully let me have someone with me i know oh, for god's sake send me someone i know the girl remained with miss luttrell while mr ford and the butler went into the hall and waited for them but there was little more to be extracted either from man or maid they only knew that after the fever lady paulyn had gone out of her mind 
she had suffered an attack of the same kind after her baby's death only not so severe an attack the doctors had come backwards and forwards and it had ended by her ladyship being removed under the care of one of them whose very name the butler had never heard everything was kept so close he repeated and it would have been as much as our places were worth to show any curiosity and thus after a little while they left Slognadiac in darkest ignorance and mr ford took miss luttrell to the manse to give her rest and refreshment before their next move which must be to london the woman he loved better than all things else in this lower world was hidden away from him in a madhouse hard trial of his faith who had made duty his rule of life if he had followed the dictates of his heart that night he might have found her some safe refuge might have saved her from this living grave with a bitter pang he recalled that last contemptuous look which she had flung him when she accused him of cowardice end of book 3 chapter 11